On Interiority, we go within with award-winning writer, presenter, actress, and activist, Lebo Mashile. Announced as Woman of the Year in Arts and Culture by Glamour Magazine in 2010 and named as one of the top 100 Africans by New African Magazine. Her published works and performances have had a decisive impact on the world and in amplifying the voices of Black women. Catch part two of my interiority conversation with her next. No one saw this coming, you know? They missed something. I didn't even know what happened. Hey, so they did, you know, they, they've been doing, uh, Swiss Beats and Timberland have been doing this like versus concept where they get different producers to come together and then they do an Insta live and then like this oh, one plays his song and that one plays. Oh. It's such a dope concept. So two nights ago, it was Babyface and uh, Teddy Riley. And yeah. they tried to do it like, nights before but Teddy Riley's sound had fucked out so it ended up being a flop but then it I mean so there was so much momentum and hype and excitement about this about this uh this battle right Mm. two nights ago when it actually happened I think something like 3.7 million people tried to log into Insta to watch this I mean it was like literally millions of people got locked out of the platform and couldn't watch it was Amazing. That is um, huge. It's massive. But again, right here, like black culture, right? I mean, mm. these are producers. The biggest hits were like 20, 30 years ago, you know? But this is the kind of energy that they can galvanize. Like something extraordinary is happening in this moment. As much as this pandemic is fucked up, but, you know, like there's something really amazing that's happening uh, like around creativity and, you know, I think there's there's an awakening that's happening that's really exciting, you know, in spite of Mm. all the other toxic stuff that's going on, you know? Yes, yes. No, I firmly believe that. I think also we've got to be willing to leave some things behind, uh, give up a few things uh, so that we can really create the kind of world that we've been saying we yearn for. You know, you've been saying yeah. it. And so here's this gift. Here's an opportunity. And so I always think, I hope we don't squander it. I hope that our focus really comes right in terms of closing the inequality gap, um, really being Oof. concerted about ending poverty and the stupid narrative, the stupid need to exclude other people. Like if we can just do away with all of that and try and have a more equitable world, that hopefully this is the start of doing I was like, just let's just bloody well do the right thing. Can we just fucking do the right thing? You know? Oh my gosh. I mean, this is my prayer too. And you know, when you see people online saying uh, that 350 rand is too much to give to people or they're just going to stay and make more babies. Or, I mean, it, it, it's like, do you, do you know who you are? Do you know where you are? Do you understand the dynamics in this place? Like, it's, and how dehumanizing it is to be poor and how, how so much is stacked against so many people in this country. That's not their fault. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and yesterday we, we, watched, we, we watched the president and I was saying to my partner, like, 350 rand. Like I just wanted to cry because I was saying to him, do you know how when I go shopping for groceries, what, what I spend, what I spend and what I would get with yes. 350 rand. It, and then you have the, that sort of arrogance and that disconnect. But that, that's for another day. That's how, that's I mean, politics. Yeah, yeah. 350 grand, 350 rand in Johannesburg is, is a meal. Like if you're sitting at a restaurant and you get a good bottle of wine and, you know, or you, or you and even, I mean, even if you're sitting with a friend and you guys have coffee and something to eat, 350 bucks, you can chow it yeah. now. And then yeah. we're expecting families to live on that money. And then you think that people are, are welfare queens because that's the money that the government is going to give them to survive a pandemic? Mm. What? It's, with very little <sighs> prospects of even that changing anytime soon. Yeah, that's wow. part of the hurt. That's really the one of the it's it's part of the hurt of what we've created. We created this this world, this life where we've made it impossible for people to be able to live a decent life. Yeah. You know, these this structure that we've created, this version of capitalism that's just so extractive and exploitative at the expense yeah. of human dignity is like I don't yeah. care. People can I always think like you can call me a socialist, I don't give a shit. But that is a mess. And that is it's a mess a we need to do mess. away with immediately. 
and this is our chance. Like, can we just make a break for it? And Adisa was like, prison break, you know, can we just get out of this prison once and for all? (laughs) It is like prison break. I mean, there's extraordinary things that are happening, like being able to see people in their houses, in their pajamas, no makeup. It's like the walls have come off. It's like there's a this veneer of respectability and, you know, kind of professionalism, like who we've had to become to maneuver through the world of work. It's like all of that is out the window. I'm sitting in my house, I'm working, I've got pajamas on in the bottom and a decent mm-hmm. top, and this is how I'm coming to the meeting, you're going to deal. And my kids are in the background. And, you know, like, it's, it's, yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm loving this. I'm loving Loving this. I'm loving seeing the girls on Insta who are taking the soaking their their jellish and taking it off like me with my crusty nails. You know what I mean? It's it's amazing. I think it's brilliant. Like it's like all of a sudden we're seeing the real versions of ourselves again. And, no, and, and you realize it's, it's mind no, you realize that that shit never mattered. It never really it didn't matter, actually. That shit was Yay. never important. This is for me, Yay. this is also what it says. Like that never actually mattered. <laughs> so hey. we can make a nice break away from it. And I think it will be hard to so, go back. I'm hoping it's hard I, to go back, you know. I, I hope so too. I mean, it's also just really interesting to see how people's uh, sleeping patterns have changed because we're not on that, the, that, that treadmill of nine to five or what, you know, that, that, that capitalist treadmill anymore. So people's body clocks are shifting, you know, uh, people are up in the middle of the night. People are napping mm. during the day. Hey, it's, 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 it's amazing. It's, it's, it, people are, we're sitting together and cooking and eating as families. I mean, as much as the, the unending dishes are annoying, but, Oh. You know, sitting and eating home-cooked food every day. Like, when last did I eat this much food that has been prepared by my own hand oh, consecutively? Exactly. Yes, yes. Oh. Now, I want to understand your process because mm. there are combinations and images that the words obviously conjure, that they create which are incredibly deep and powerful. And I always think, how? How does that happen? Is it a visual? Is it, is oh. it emotion and the words attaching to that that give the emotion uh, a description and a way of being expressed? What is, like, what's your process? What is your process in coming up with your work? Yeah, okay. So how do the words come? Um, so I think, you know, um, who was my dear friend and mentor and the poet laureate of South Africa before he passed away, who I miss very, very much. He used to always, you know, he used to always say that, that the best that you can do as a writer is to try to approximate what it is that you see and what you hear. So Mm. every poem the, every poem or, you know, every piece is, is, is not, it's not quite exactly what it is that I wanted to say, but it was as close as I could get to it, you know? And, and I think the, the, the poem, so, I mean, the poem is actually in the process. It's in the making. It's in, it's in, it's in trying to find the best way to capture a mood, a feeling, a vision, a sound, a color, a story. Um, And Mm. I mean, I think the the most interesting ones are the ones where I I start out with um, a very, a very clear feeling but but that's anchored in a question you know if the the best poems come from the desire to explore something you know if i already know what it is that i want to say then uh, it's not that interesting to say you know oh. um yeah for real for real i mean that's the that that's the irony it's like it's like the the exploration of uncertainty is far more interesting than starting out and being like i want to write about this and i want people to feel like this that's not really a poem that's like a speech yeah. you, you know that's, yeah. that's that is something else you know um but that's so, interesting so, because so, then that means that you have a very different relationship to the outcome you have a very different relationship because sometimes when the mistake we make is when we create or even when we're planning things in our everyday life, 
I know I've made this mistake a lot and I've come to recognize it is being attached to the result that at the end of this, I want to feel X or at the end of this, it should be this. And it's about more the outcome, the, the, the destination versus, as you said, it's about creating. It comes out of the process of creation. Yeah, I mean, this has been a big revelation for me again, like with maturity, is realizing actually uncertainty, imperfection, not knowing where this is going and but committing to the ride is the most exciting. That's what makes the journey really exciting. But if, mm. if I, when, when I try to be in control, when I try to uh, direct, you know, where this must go instead of trusting where it wants to go. Uh, that's when I end up creating stuff that really feels like, man, okay, it's fine. It's okay. But ah, you know what? This isn't going to change the world. It's not, it's, you know, it's not exciting. You know what I mean? Like, let me, let me do the gig and get the money and run, you know, but this is not the, this is not the poem that I want to take to the people, you know, how new, this is not the one I want to be yeah. for, you know? Mm-hmm. You know, um, so yeah, I mean, but, but that also means, um, it means having to fall in love with the unknown, which is not, which is not easy, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but, but mm-hmm. I guess, I guess again, like it's, it's also, I mean, I know you love like visual art and you love like different kinds of stimulation. So mm-hmm. it's, it's also what I find very helpful in, in, in terms of building my own arsenal is trying to expose myself to as much, uh, as many different forms of creative stimulation as I can, you know? So, so, you know, there's, there's, there's music and sound in my arsenal, there's visual art in my arsenal, there's film in my arsenal, there's novels and biographies. And, you know, so I, I, I want to live a life where I'm constantly being fed and stimulated and, and challenged and provoked and, you know, healed by creativity because then I've got more stuff to draw from. Then when I'm, exactly. I'm trying to reach into that like cloud, you know, and, and get the best approximation you know, of, of what it is I want to say. I've got more stuff to draw from. Mm, mm. Um, I think the artists that I've, I've spoken to over, you know, however many years of doing this, I'm always fascinated by their process. It's almost as if I want to climb into their heads, into their brains <laughs> yeah. and their minds and yeah. literally look around like, oh, is this how this works? <laughs> like this machinery <laughs> works like this. Like I always think, <laughs> How do, how do their brains create that? Because whether it's yeah. music, you're listening to like a beat from Black Coffee and you think, how? how yeah, no, I don't have, yeah. the, the, I, I'm not wired that way. So I always think it really takes um, an interesting mind, you know, and I've always wondered, what is this? How does that mind, the machinery of that mind, how is it churning? How is it operating? What's its input? What's its process to deliver this output that we hear? Uh, so I always think it's, it's a fascinating mind that creatives have. And it's a different thing for everybody. I mean, it's interesting that you bring up black coffee because Nati is so specific about what it is that he wants, right? So I mm. did the, the, the intro for his last album and yes. I remember you know, going, yes. to, going into the studio with him and he was like very clear. He was like, I do, I mean, a lot of artists will be like, uh, I'm going to do an album, so I'll record maybe 20 tracks to get down to like 12 or 13, you know? Nancy's like, yeah. I don't have time to waste. I'm doing 13 tracks. I'm recording 13 tracks. This is what I want, you know? And I mean, I remember when, and I had my ideas about he, what I wanted to do. He had his ideas about what he wanted to do. It was his album, you know? And he was, like, he was very clear, Jorge, this is what I want from you. This is how I want it. This is how I want to use it. And Avella, that's what he did. That's what he wanted. That's how he used it. That's how it ended up, you know? So, I mean, mm. it's, I, I guess it's, 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 it's very different for everybody, you know? I'm, I'm kind of more, I'm more interested. I like process. I like process work. I like building work. I like finding the stuff. I like, um, I like being surprised at the end. I mean, and the thing about, the thing about, about well, I guess, with poetry also, with the way that I perform my poetry is that the writing is like phase one, you know? The poem really comes to life once it's with the people, you know? And mm. then when it's with the people, then I find other layers in the language that even I didn't hear. Wow. 
which is always really interesting for me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I remember working with, when I was doing Threads, um, I was working with Jeremy Fugain, came on as kind of like the second director to sort of coach me for my performance. And I love him, Dr. Jerry. He's one of my favorite people and performers. He's an incredible human being and artist. And he was And you like, did that with uh, moving into dance, Mopatong, right? Which that, is also just another with, amazing project. Oh, they are incredible. I mean, they've been in existence for 42 years. Um, Right now, like many of our cultural institutions, they are on the brink of collapse, which is such a horrible position that we put so many creative institutions through. Moving into dance, I mean, if you name a Black dancer of the last 35 years who has gone on to do well on the international Mm. stage, on the national stage, chances are at some point they pass through moving into dance. They just, they produce a nurture genius. That's what they do, you know? So, I mean, the fact that, you know, they're struggling for funding and survival, it kind of speaks to, again, like, you know, the the toxic situation that we put artists through in this country, you know? We made threads, um, we made threads about 10, 11, 12 years ago in celebration of their 30th uh, anniversary. And mm-hmm. so I, I, I worked with Sylvia Glasser, their founder, and she choreographed the piece and I worked with their company. And it, it was such an amazing process because I had to deliberately write poems that could be performed, right? So the sensibility in the language had to have movement. It, ha- it was text, but the text had to tell a story that could be moved, um, which was, which was an, a, a wonderful challenge for me and forced me to grow. And it also made me realize like I think up until that point in my mind my performance was my voice I didn't really think about my body as a vehicle that was always speaking you know mm-hmm. um yeah yeah so it, it it put me inside of my body in a way that I'd never been before you know it was it was it was a, a really pivotal moment for me as an artist and so one day we're in a rehearsal and he's like Lebu Go and stand in the corner and deliver that poem, and you can't use your hands because my default position is talking with my hands. Yeah, and I wanted yes. to cry. Like I, li- I was so frustrated. <laughs> I wanted to kill him. I wanted to kill myself. <laughs> I had tears in my eyes, you know. And he was. And eventually, I found the point of the exercise. Like even with without with all of my crutches cut off, the mm. language itself was still speaking. The language is the beginning and the end of all of this, you know? Mm. So he was like, do you see the point? He was like, even when the words are yours, you must respect them. Don't, yeah, hey, hey. He was like, I don't want to see you trying to, you know, add fluff to your words. Come on, and all this other stuff. Like, we don't need theatrics. Like, the words are enough. Trust your words. Mm. Don't and don't remix your words. The, respect the writer. The writer knew what she was saying when she said it. Respect the writer, even when the writer is you. Mm. Mm. It it becomes even more profound with that. Wow. Oh. 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 Sure. That you know that hit me. Oh. You know the moments. I think in, in this conversation, whether it was goosebumps <laughs> or, uh, but now like that hit me in the chest. <laughs> mm. It literally hit me in the chest. chest. It still comes back to me because it's, it's, I mean, then it's, it's like, yeah, if I don't, if I don't respect my own words, what am I saying? Why Mm. am I doing this? What am I saying to myself about myself first and foremost? You know? So let's look, let's look at your work because your most recent work is Venus versus modernity. Um, And what, it's just such a beautiful homage to Sarki, Sarki Batman. And I think the, on the one occasion when I spoke to you, it was clear that that work had just, you, it, it seared, it was seared, her, her, her life story um, and her, 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 sto- her life story and who she was, was seared in your mind, but it was also very demanding. It was demanding yes. that you let it out, that you give it life, that you do something. Is, just talk to me yes. about that. Like, you know, when an artist Ooh. is just so compelled beyond their own, their own control, you know, their own will, this has to like just be birthed and burst out of you. It's a must. It must be done. It demands, it commands that you do it. Yo, I've never experienced anything like that in my life. But I think it was, it was also, it's been an, it's an important experience for me because it's also 
taught me to trust my intuition, to allow my intuition to guide me towards the stories that need to be told and the stories that, that, that need to be told by me, you know? Um, so, I, I mean, I first came across Saki's story about 20 years ago when I was at university and working through my own issues of, you know, Black womanhood, body, feminism, as a young woman, mm. you know, coming to all of these, these very complicated uh, concepts. And, and her story has stayed with me. I mean, I think as it has with millions and millions and millions of Black women around the world, you know, she's like this archetype of uh, the, the oppressive nature of Black women's representation in a white supremacist capitalist kind of post-slavery society world, right? Um, Mm. So I remember, you know, sort of 10, 12 years ago when I started going through my own very public weight battles, you know, Sarki came back again as a reference point. And I'm very grateful um, for her as an archetype because I think if I didn't if I didn't have Sarki as a template, if I didn't have Sarki as a frame of reference, I think the stuff that I've been through mm. with my own battles would have, mm. it would have destroyed me. I would have taken it on. I would have taken it on as me. I would have, I don't know what I would have done to myself, you know, um, if, if I didn't realize that I'm a part of a machinery that is hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years old that has been built to destroy me, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. And so... so when I remember I'd been working with um, Pamela Nomvet about six years ago on telling, uh, telling her story, the, the, the theatrical adaptation of her autobiography, Nya Dancer, yeah. which is a harrowing book. I mean, she, you know, I mean, Pam is, is another constant reference for me and a very dear friend and collaborator. And um, Pam, I mean, the story of South African fame is... It's particularly cruel and vicious, but it's more so for Black women, you know? Um, I mean, we've just lost Vinolia recently, you know? And this, this trajectory mm. that Black women go through, you know, you, you are this superstar, you are, you are on everyone's lips, you're on everyone's screens, and then boom, poof, 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 And you dragged yourself down into the gutters of society. But meanwhile, there are all these forces that are working against you. So when I read Pam's book, yeah, so when I read Pam's book, it was like, damn, here it is again. And then she wanted to do a stage adaptation and bring it to South Africa. We did it. I wrote for it as well. I also performed in it as well. And it was such a healing experience. And that for me was one of the turning points again, where I realized like, man, if I don't invest in doing my own work, I will not survive the machinery of arts, entertainment and fame in South Africa. Like this thing is, it's, it's beyond just, you know, wanting to, to leave behind a nice body of work. Like this not nice body of work is my survival. This is going to be the thing that helps me get through this, you know? So after mm. I'd worked with Pam, it, I'd had such a wonderful experience working with Pam. And I was like, I want to make more work like this. I want to make more work with you. And she had a, a, a artistic kind of incubation space that she was running. And she was like, okay, come, we'll do some workshops. And the story that flew out of me was Sarki. I didn't expect it. It just came. And then Sarki proceeded to colonize my life for like five years. Like I tried to do other projects. I even did another, I did a whole nother album, but Sarki was there like, yay, talk to I'm here. Do finish, finish this work, finish this work. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. I even, I, I, and, and I found her in the most, in the weirdest places. Like, I mean, the one time my family went on holiday in the Eastern Cape and we found ourselves just like an hour outside of her birthplace. And I mean, it was just wow. like, there were so many weird coincidences that kept bringing me back to the story. Then I got yeah. an opportunity to uh, be a curator, one of the curators at the very first season of the Center for the Less Good Idea. And yeah. that's where I met Anne Massina, who was a long time collab- who's been a long time collaborator with William Kentridge, incredible opera singer, um, one of these like unsung g- talents. Like she's a global phenomenon, and Anne has been working for as long as we've been working. Um, mm. She's like one of the mm. best voices I've ever heard in my entire life. She's crisscrossed the planet, but she's unknown here in South Africa, you know. And this is also yeah. the story for many artists, many touring, working artists who are kicking ass internationally, but are unknown at home because of, you know, a lack of access to cultural spaces, institutional support, a lack of support for the arts, a lack of a mainstream Mm -hmm. presence for the arts. You know, there's Mm -hmm. so many different things that work against these kinds of talents in terms of allowing people to be able to be famous 
here at home and work here at home, you know? So, I mean, yeah. Anne has been working with William for more than a decade. And when I saw Anne, I fell in love with Anne and I was like, I have to work with you. And then when we started working together, I mean, Anne is, is also a plus-size woman, gorgeous. I mean, her, her body is as big as her voice, as big as her beauty. And again, the story that came out was Venus, you know? We're both working yes. artists. We're both single moms. We're both touring artists. We both moved through the world in these bodies. And mm. all roads again pointed to Zarki. And I was like, okay, Zarki, okay, fine. Yes, thank you. You found your Venus. Here we are. Let's do the thing. <laughs> we are ready and for you. We are ready for you. And I mean, she's, 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 I feel like she sat on me and I feel like she, she pulled together the, the, the people, the resources, the spaces that she wanted to come together to tell this particular story. The reason why I was fascinated, I mean, as I, as I continue to do the research and, um, and develop, you know, my, my kind of vantage point into the story, because many people have told the story and many people will continue to tell the story because she mm -hmm. is such a major reference, you know? But when I was building my particular vantage point, the things that struck me were that Saraki, as much as she was oppressed and as much as she was faced with like really harrowing circumstances, you know, that, that, that destroyed her, you know, that obliterated her, she also made some pretty profound choices, you know? Yeah, for that and, time and for those circumstances, for, absolutely. Right, right. And the fact that, you know, the historical narrative around her has erased a lot of those choices. Like Saraki was one of the most famous women in Europe of her time. I mean, mm. the human zoo phenomenon lasted like, you know, like 200 years, you know what I mean? In Europe, like, you know, for the, it, it lasted as long as the colonial project, right? But yeah. how many of those people who were in those zoos do we know by name? How many of those people in those zoos influenced fashion? How many of those people in those zoos were reference points for mm. political mm. cartoonists, mm. for satirists? How many of those people, uh, you know, crisscrossed Europe as performers? How many of them, you know, became kind of cultural icons, you know? And when I really started to think about that and unpack that, I kind of was like, oh, this woman was like legitimately famous. Like, sure. there was... I mean, yes, she was, she was exhibited. I mean, there were times when she was exhibited and really treated like, I mean, like an animal. I mean, in like just disgusting, dehumanizing circumstances. But when she first shot to fame at Piccadilly Center, she mm. curated how she presented herself. She sang. She played instruments. She was an artist. I was like, mm. damn. Damn. They could do me like Sarki. Yeah. In 200 yeah. years, if, if, my, if my work is left in the hands of white supremacy and misogyny, you know, the, I'll just be like a, a quarter to monkey on stage most. Mm, mm, you know, wow. so, so that when, when that penny dropped, I was like, oh, wow. So, okay, Sarki is me. Sarki is Venus. Sarki is Beyonce. Sarki is uh, Brenda Fassi. Sarki is Boo Simchong. Sarki is Bumshaka. Sarki Sarki's like all of us. And, and, the, and then Hashtag. also, again, mm. like the trauma of all of our lives also started to make sense, like why we have a propensity towards uh, you know, toxic relationships with men, uh, codependency, substance abuse, being exploited by the industry. It's all a part of the same conveyor belt of oppression. Just kind of remixing, changing ever so slightly, you know, maybe getting better over time, allowing you to get more money over time, but still, you know, the same, same system. Down. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's the same yeah. system doing the same things to us. So what are yeah. you working on now? I know I've been nagging you. Because <laughs> I'm trying to get my hands on one of your previous books and there's just oh, nothing gosh. in the bookstores. So um, oh, in a rhythm gosh. of rhythm, in a ribbon of rhythm, yeah. waiting. Yes. And of course, my, we need this. Yeah. My biggest challenge in life, I think like many Black artists around the world, is archiving, you know? So, I mean, this has been, 2020 was my year of the archive, doing the archive. And I mean, this year has been turned upside down. So I'm kind of sitting, I'm sitting in my house and I'm like, okay, what can I do with what I have, you know? So right. I'm starting with, I'm starting with recording, actually. I'm doing audiobooks for my books, for, for, for both of my books that have been published. Yay! 
And I've, I've got book three also coming in the pipeline. I'm like 80% done with that. Um, I want to do a soundtrack for Venus because the music is, is so mm. beautiful and mm. the poetry and it just kind of lends itself to that. So well, as soon as we get out of lockdown, that's the project that I want to do, you know? Um, yeah, I mean, beautiful. that's if I, if I can get those things done, book three, the archive, the audio books, the Venus soundtracks, 2020 will have been a good year, you know? Inshallah, yes. Being locked down in the house also is just like God being like, okay, now do it. <laughs> Wait, time. What are you doing if you're not doing this? <laughs> but are you writing a lot? <laughs> you're not doing that, but I, uh, are you writing a lot? Who? You know, I mean, I'm such a workaholic. I don't know how to not work. Like, I'm I'm the probably the only person who's overworking in a pandemic, you know? Like mm. just, I am writing. Mm. I am writing. Um commissioned work, but and 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 also and also my own work. Um yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm in it. I'm in it, in it, in it, in it, in it. That's wonderful to hear. I know I've got to let you go. Your boys must be thinking, ma, really? <laughs> really? <laughs> but, you know, I, I was watching you. I was watching you. Um, was it the design in Daba? No, it was not the, uh, your, 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 your talk at the design in Daba. It was a TED talk in yeah. Houston right? Yeah. Yeah. And I was, you know, as what, this is what happens when someone's watching you. Uh, we start, we hear the words, we hear what you're saying. We can see the image of what you're saying. It cuts to the heart. Your heart gets involved. Your soul is awake, is awoken at that time. You know, you almost want to get on your feet and do something, either move or scream or cry or go and start Thank a revolution you. like in this minute, you know, <laughs> listening to you. And then, and then you kind of start to drift in the feelings and the words. So you stop kind of playing as close attention as you were at the beginning. You know, that's what happens to me at least. Like I'm paying such close attention yeah. to every single thing you're saying, then I get to that point where I literally want to leave my house, leave the gates and go and do something about <laughs> this way I'm feeling, right? But then yeah, yeah. I start to glide, I start to ride the emotions and ride wow. uh, the words. And then as I'm, like, I'm watching and I'm watching and I'm on this journey, and then something says to me, ask her what gives her authority. What gives you authority? Mm. Where do you get your authority? It's interesting that you oh. talk about what Dr. Jerimufukin said to you about move and not disrespecting your words. But I know that when I was watching you, the authority came from the words, but it also came from your body. You know, it, it, didn't, it wasn't just a mouth uttering words. It came from deep, like it felt like it was mine. It came from so deep within. So... I, w I was curious about, do you have a sense of this authority that you have and where it comes <laughs> from? Like this well, <gasps> the, where is it from? In my mind, I'm just like corny me moving through, you know, like... <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm such a I'm such a cornball. I like to laugh. I have a stupid sense of humor. Like in my in my real life, you know, I'm <laughs> I'm another character, you know. Oh, uh, thank you for saying that. That means so much to me. I, I, one of my favorite quotes by by Bessie Head is, "I write because I have the authority from life to do so," mm -hmm. and and I I I, I come back to that. Often, you know, I, I do what I do because I'm alive. I do what I do because my ancestors could and also couldn't, you know. I do what I do because I'm here and because I want my children to move through the life, through, through life as, as, as African boys and later as African men who feel like the world belongs to them because so many of us have been taught that, you know, that our own lives, our own spaces don't even belong to us, you know? So mm -hmm. I guess it's the authority comes from, gosh, a deep resistance to, to, to the same sense of fear that I walk side by side with, 
you know, mm. to the same anxiety, the same insecurity, you know, the same trauma, the same um, forces that act on my life and have acted on my life and made me feel small. You know, the authority comes out of, out of that, that, out of, out of that, that, that same darkness, you know, um, I, I think one of the blessings of being able to do what I do is kind of seeing how in, in small ways and sometimes in big ways, you know, how just being in a space allows the space to transform in that moment, yeah. you know? Sometimes yeah. the ripple effect of that transformation is very big, you know? But sometimes it's just in the moment. Like like watching, you know, standing up on a stage and seeing, you know, a, a, a woman whose eyes were cast down, all of a sudden watching her face light mm. up and seeing that mm. she is connecting and she's inside of it. I live for that. That mm. is what that's. That's my high. That's where I get my rocks off, like connection, communion. And I guess, you know, over the years, I've kind of also realized, like, all I really have is that moment. I don't have control over who you become when the performance is over and you sink back into your own skin. I don't have control over who you are when you're sitting in your house and you're thinking about this stuff. I don't have control over who you are when you wake up in the morning on the toilet, right? But in that moment, I know that the devil himself has to connect. Mm. Is what I'm saying. Mm. You, you, you know? And, and, and I, I love that. I love that there's, and, and I mean, it's, it's people, people are, will often be like, oh, it's, it's, you know, you're so powerful. It's power, but it's, it's not, it's, the origins of it are not power. The origins of it are really vulnerability. Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, hmm. it, you, you, you can't connect with people without making yourself transparent. You right. know, without showing like all of the, the wounds and the guts and the, you know, and, and not that you, not that, that that must be the only thing that you show people, because I, I also believe that I also believe that you can take people into the depths of despair, but you have to give people a journey as well. You know, like, like uh, you, I, I think you, you know, you have to, you can go into the darkness, but you must also bring people out into the light, you know, you must show like, like a performance should give people a spectrum of ideas and emotions, you know, a whole kind of canon of, of, of emotional experiences, you know, should be contained, even whether it's a three minute performance or whether it's a 30 minute performance or a TED talk or whatever, you should walk out with a range of things, you know, in your heart. Right. Yeah. Um, but I do believe that, that in that moment, like I can tell the devil about his fire, you know, as if I do it with grace and with honesty and, and, and with my, and, and by, by laying myself on the line, by making myself vulnerable, you know, I can get even somebody who hates me to hear. Mm. You know, I don't have control over, you know, when you come back into your own skin and you're like, oh, but actually I'm a misogynist and I don't give a fuck. You know, like, <laughs> I've got no control over that. <laughs> I've got no control over, you know? But at the but moment, it's it's what you have control over. Yes. Of Salah, <laughs> when we in the thing, you are going to be there too, Papa, you're going to hear. Yeah, <laughs> just that's just so beautiful. I'm I'm so glad that you gave me a glimpse of what it's like through your eyes when you're on that stage. You know what you see in us looking back at you. That was such a oh, such an evocative description. Uh, it's probably the time when I'm at my most aware. It's probably you know I struggle. I really struggle with being in the now because I'm always like kind of floating in different timelines. Like part of me is thinking about month end and bills. Part of me is thinking about six months from now. Part of me is thinking about when the lockdown ends. Part of me is thinking about the timelines for the different projects that I'm working through. Part of me is like thinking about 20 years ago, 30 years ago. You know, like I'm always kind of floating in different timelines. When I am at my most present is is in... In, when I'm creating something and, and when I'm standing in front of an audience, that's when I'm really in the now. And I, it feels like I can feel every single person in the room in that moment. Oh, are you exhausted? It's amazing. Amazing, of course. Uh, are you yeah. exhausted after that? Do you, what do you do after that? Do you need silence? You, you know, I think... Um, that heightened state of awareness and that 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 heightened state of connection mm. is something that 
very few people really get to experience. And I think wanting to stay in that place, wanting to stay in that high is one of the reasons why so many of us become addicts, you know? Um, because, because it's like you get, to thro- you get to cross over a threshold of reality, you know? Mm-hmm. And, 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 and you live in a heightened reality. And then coming back down to the real world is like, ah, why am I here? You know what I mean? Like, I, I don't want to be there. I want to stay over there. I want to stay there. I want to stay there. And also, I mean, at the end of the day, we are just like, we're small human beings. Even I, as a person, cannot live up to that experience mm-hmm. that you had on stage. That's my job. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? So I, I, I can't be that energy that's bursting at the seams when you see me after the gig. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. th- at that moment, like, I'm, I'm human and I'm getting back into my own skin and I'm dealing with my own stuff and I'm thinking about getting back home. So over the years, what I've also learned is just to allow myself to come down. Like, it is a come down, so come down. Come right down. The best thing to do after a gig is to come home, do the dishes, put some laundry in the machine, you know, do something like completely and utterly pedestrian so that like, you, it, it's kind of like, it's, it's grounding, you know, to get back into reality, you know? Um, sometimes after a theater show, I'll, I'll just go backstage and just lie on the ground, like literally just to ground. Yes, yes. You know, it's like, yeah, like, it's like walking barefoot. We don't do it enough. And if yes. we ever get to live just flat on the ground, it's, it's oh. just something, I don't know what it is, but there's just something that, yeah. it's, there's this, oh, like at the end of a yoga session afterwards, you know, there's often this moment yes. to breathe, but you're lying flat on the ground, you know, on your back. Yes. And it's one yes. of the most calming, most peaceful, just to look up. Sometimes I do yoga outside of my house and I'd look up at the sky and I just think, Wow. It's just such a, grat- a gratitude-filling moment. I can't describe it, actually. How do you feel when you're flat Completely. on the street? Complete. I mean, it's, it's, that's what grounding is, right? It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's kind of, it's us realizing that energetically our bodies are actually connected to the earth, you know, that, that there's, there, there are energetic roots that, that travel through our bodies deep into the core of the earth, you know? Mm. And, and I think this is kind of also even what COVID is teaching us, what Corona is teaching us, that we are all connected and we're all connected to the earth, you know? Mm-hmm. What we do to the earth is what we do to ourselves. What I do to you is what I do to myself, you mm. know? If, if there's a virus that is alive in the air, like you can't tell me that race and class and nationality and all these things matter, you know, because we're all like breathing the same air, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I also, at grounding, I also learned about the grounding principle through yoga, you know, and through that, the, the death pose, right? The, the, that when yes. you lie on the ground and, yes. and there's something so powerful about just allowing the earth to hold you. I mean, I feel every time I do it, I'm always just like, oh gosh. And I mean, there's often, there's a part of me that's like, ah man, why must I just lie down? Why must I? But invariably when I do do it, the value and the benefit of it comes. It comes in the process, you know? That you, you Like I realized like, I just knew you would find the word for it. The earth is, it feels like the earth is holding you. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's it's when you, when we are buried, right? You you go back into the womb of the earth. That's that, that's why it's the death pose, you know, because you're going, you're 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 lying on the ground the same way the ground will ultimately hold all of us when we die, you know. So it's profound, and to to come from the the high of a performance to that, it's like okay, yeah, no, I'm back. I'm in my own skin. This is who I am now. Yeah. I can pay bills. Yeah. You know, now I can change a diaper. Now yeah. I can. <laughs> yeah. You know? You know? Yeah. Oh. yeah. It's hard though. I mean, it's hard. My, my, my therapist was saying that she feels, because her area of specialty is addiction. Mm-hmm. And she was saying that, you know, the thing about addicts is that the, the, what the addict is meant to teach the world is that there is a world beyond this plane because the addict 
gets to touch it, you know? And I feel, I feel that with, with, with performance, you know? I think that's why I am addicted to crossing over the threshold of fear and anxiety and getting into that high, you know? Mm-hmm. But, 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 I, but living there is, is not, it's not healthy. It's a privilege to be able to touch it. It's a privilege to know that I will touch it again. But living there, you, I, you can't live there. Living yeah. there will burn you out. So there's a reason why you get to visit it rather than yes. living there. Because as you said, would, you would burn out. It would obliterate you. So there's a difference there. You know, just before we, we finish, I just remembered that there's a question that I was also just holding on to. What lesson mm-hmm. do you think you're here to learn? Lesson, lessons, do you think wow. you're here to learn? Because out of a lot of moments in my life, you know, I always think, okay, what was the lesson here? And then I start to think, okay, if there's a pattern um, in similar experiences and so on, it's almost as if, okay, what is the lesson that I'm slow to learn, but that I'm mm. slow to learn? We talked about patience earlier on and what um, this uh, this lockdown is also demanding of us, you know, a bit of patience for me is something that I've always struggled with, but the universe then would gift me a partner who's very laid back. And I'm like, gotta go, gotta do, we gotta do, we gotta do, you know, like my son is like so chilled, you know? And so, and the impatience gets me, I can do stuff. I'm efficient. I'm quick. I need to do it. And, and it drives the, a lot of the energy, you know, that I need to do to get things yeah. done. But then at the same time, it's also hurt me. You know, the impatience has hurt me. So I always think, okay, this is one thing I've got to kind of leave this life having mastered as in I can command it, use it when I need it, but at the same time, allow it to humble me, um, for, to, to the moment. So I know for sure that one of the lessons I'm here to learn is to truly exit, to, to truly allow patience to, to be a part of me because in my spirit, it just, it coming into this world, it wasn't always, you know, so now I have to allow it to be a part of me. Maybe I'll, I'll do better in the next life because then it will, I'll move forward with it. Oof, I resonate with that. That resonates with me in such a deep, deep way. But I mean, I think it's also born out of having to do so many different things at the same time, right? Like mm-hmm. we don't have, I don't, I don't have the luxury of being able to luxuriate and be, and, and you're like, you, you, oh, I'm, I've been, for as long as I've been doing, I've been doing 10 things at the same time because I have to, you know? So yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, slowing down, being present, being fully present. Um, And I mean, that's something that my children also teach me, like, because children pick up energy very quickly. Like when you are distracted, they know. Mm. (laughs) When you're not fully there, they know, you know? Um, So I've, I've had to work very hard on creating a life that fills my cup up so that I don't give my kids uh, from, I don't give my kids my worst self. I don't give my kids my empty self, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I'm, I, I guess I, I know that in this incarnation, one of the big issues that I'm working through is residual trauma from slavery, colonialism, and apartheid from previous lifetimes, you know? Yeah. I know that's, that's part of the, the why that I'm here, you know? Um, and I think the, the, one of the, the big things that, that, um, that I have to, that that means that I have to work through in my relationships, um, and I guess with my relationship with myself also, is receiving love, you know? Um, because my tendency is to give too much or to work too hard, to push myself too hard, to overcompensate. Um, It's really work for me to be still. It's really work for me also to receive, to just receive with like no expectations, like to receive like 
not because I've done like 50 million things that have made me worthy of receiving this, but just to receive because it's God's grace and God's blessing. And this is the love that I deserve. Just have it. Like that is work for me. Mm, Wow. I can also definitely relate to that. And that takes work. And to just say I am enough and I am worthy of this. That's it. Worthiness. Yes. Yeah. Just loved chatting to you. Um, uh, it's like I don't want it to end (laughs) this was a profound gift oh my god there's my family calling me yes you see see? I knew it I knew this is the moment this is the time to end it my son son is like okay enough enough thank you exactly that's one and I could sense that okay anybody's everybody's patience would wear off um, you've, given, ah. you've given so generously. Um, I'm so grateful. I want to say thank you to you. You've given so much and not just what you do on stage with the work that you are giving the world, but in this conversation and just to every moment, every moment I've encountered you, every moment we have spoken, I've never felt as if I got half of Lebo or Lebo is just not feeling the, the moment. You always just give so generously. And I think this conversation has been a further testament to that. I don't think oh. words are enough. All I, all I have <laughs> is thank you. Thank you, Liv. Oh, you are a light and a wonder. You are glorious. I'm so, so grateful. This is like one of the best conversations I have ever had in my whole entire life. I can't wait. I can't wait to hear it. I can't wait. To share it, this has been a tremendous gift to me from the bottom of my heart. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for all that you are, all that you do for today. Amen. 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 What a way. <laughs> what? Oh, I'm so, um, yeah. Just, this is going up right at the top of my gratitude journal. Interview with Lebohang Mashile today. Thank even you. in me, even me. <laughs> <laughs> I'll keep you posted about everything. Um, and Fabulous. Such a fantastic archive. I'm so grateful for me, Nje. I'm so grateful. Thank you. Thank you, Lebo. You've made my day. Killer <laughs> Rato, hella, 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 hella. Only. It's again, only. <laughs> <laughs> All right, take care. You two have a beautiful night, gorgeous one. Thank you. All right, bye. Okay, bye. This is a conversation with Africans about their inner world. Interiority conversations center on our blackness, perspectives, thoughts, lived experiences, reflections, and worldview. It's an exploration of within the making, the wonder, the magic. Thank you for listening.